Amen. Praise the Lord indeed. Again, it's great to see each of you here this morning gathered together. If you've joined us any time in the uh, late spring to early summer up through now, we've been going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter. And we've been hearing about how God is on the move, how God is not a God who sits still and waits for people to come to him, but he pursues humanity pursues a broken world and goes after them and moves by his spirit into the world in really exciting and gracious, loving, compassionate ways. As we begin the fall, we're going to take a three-week pause from the excitement of running with God and seeing how he's on the move. And we're going to take the next three weeks, kind of as a transition into this new season of the fall, And we're going to instead learn what it means to walk with God. We've been sprinting for a few months. And as I've been listening to your stories and listening to the Holy Spirit, even in my own life, um, I just sense that it's good for us to slow down and to learn personally anew or for the first time what it means to walk with our God. So that's our new little mini-series that we're going to jump into starting this morning. And the goal is to learn the modern faith, learn what it means to be a Christian in the current day, but do so by learning from ancient voices. So even in a room like this, we have stained glass. It's spectacular. I don't even know if they make stained glass like this anymore. If they do, it's increasingly hard to find. But as you look around... You see people from ancient times, 2,000 years ago, telling the story of what it means to have faith, what it means to trust, what it means to lean on something that you can't see, the immortal, invisible God that we sang of. So let's learn from the ancient voices these next three weeks. We'll learn from people such as David or the psalmist, which is what we're looking at this morning, or Moses, or next week, Zephaniah, or the week after that, the prophet Micah. So let's learn from these ancient voices together. As we begin that this morning, I want to give you an image. Um, As Sarah mentioned during the children's story, we were away on vacation for a couple of weeks. We got back about a week and a half ago. But we were down in North Carolina, and a lot of what we did was just sitting around, (laughs) resting, doing nothing, uh, because that's what you do when you're on vacation for a good bit of it. But as as the week went along, we decided to do a little bit more adventurous stuff and get outside. And near where my parents are, which is where we were visiting, there's a place called Deep Creek. And it's part of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And there's a a creek, or a a deep creek is what they call it. It's really a small river, however you want to look at it, I guess. Um, There's a river that runs uh, through the mountains, and there's a beautiful uh, trail that goes by it, a nice wide trail. You can walk up alongside the river, see a couple of waterfalls, cross over bridges, um, or even go tubing down the river, which is what we did with our kids a few times. But as we were walking on Deep Creek uh, or running a couple of times, uh, just was walking up the trail, and words that were coming to mind to me were peace. Quiet, joy, journey, just what it, what it looks like to take a nice walk by the water in the mountains on a beautiful summer day. Um, 
And like I said, we were right by this river. And for the first week and a half or so while we were down there, the river was running pretty slow. There hadn't been much rain. But then tropical depression Fred came through our part of the country where we were and dumped several inches of rain. And so I went the next morning and it was a mighty rushing river and the waterfalls were four times as powerful as they were the day before. And it turned it into this just majestic scene of rushing water. And these images from the scriptures of God's voice being like the voice, the sound of many waters, that's what came to mind to me as I heard this waterfall rushing. And so picture yourself on that trail, seeing what we saw. Um, and then now picture, picture the slowdown that we're talking about. I want to picture us kind of moving from the rushing waters of God on the move. Even the logo we've used for the, the series, God on the Move, has rushing water in the background. Maybe you picked up on that. And the, the image we're using for this series is a trail a quiet trail that's kind of above those waters. But you can hear the sound of those waters. You can look down and see it. You can walk down to it and hear it. But you're on the quiet path, learning what it means to find peace in a frenetic world. So you may even say, as we're, as we're getting into this, this series, Walking with God, and this is really where we're going to go this morning, you may, even, you may even be asking, I'm not sure what season of life you're in. Again, we have everything from uh, pre-K to college students to, to young professionals to retired folks in this room. I'm not sure what season of life you're in. But you may even in the, in the deepest part of your heart be saying this morning, why would I want to walk with God? Why, why would I commit myself to that kind of journey? What's, what's the advantage of walking with God? How do I even know maybe that God is even real? If he is invisible, if we can't see him, how do I know that he's there? Or maybe it's even in a city like this, which God are you even talking about? In this city, there are many kinds of gods that people are choosing to worship. And so this morning, as we look into Psalm 113, we're also going to peer into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and also look into something that Moses says in Exodus 34. And we're going to answer some of those questions. Why would I walk with God? Who is God? Is he even real? And which God are you even talking about? The Bible actually uses the phrase walking with God a couple of times, and it uses it right from the beginning of the Bible. There's a man named Enoch in the Bible, who it says he walked with God. And it says it twice. It repeats it. It says he walked with God. And the second time it says it, it says, and then God took him and he was no more. As a result of his learning to walk with God genuinely, he actually was rewarded with going straight to God's presence. It's kind of a mysterious story. I can't, I can't explain the story of Enoch very well. I'm not sure anybody could, but the corollary is walking with God equals presence with God and finding peace for your soul. Deuteronomy also talks about walking with God. It's an instruction that God gives to his people of Israel later. It says, uh, you shall not turn to the right hand or to the left, but you shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that you may live 
and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That's a promise, that if you walk as God chooses you to walk, if you walk in his ways, it'll go well for you. You will find life. You'll find life to the full, as Jesus says in John 10. And so these next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what this means, and we're going to do it in a step-by-step way. No pun intended with walking, I guess. So this morning, uh, we're going to learn from the ancients, beginning with the Psalms. And today, we're going to focus just on the one word. In the three words of walking with God, we're going to focus on the last one, God. God. And particularly answer the question, who? Who is God? Maybe the question you're asking already is, how can Stephen answer that question in the next 20 minutes? (laughs) And the answer is, I can't. The goal of this morning is not to prove the existence of God to you. You could find that in a lot of places. The the goal this morning is not to to build some kind of giant philosophical argument for the, the theory of if God is real or if he's not. But the goal this morning is to tell you who the God of the Bible is and then to let you decide if that's a God that you see as relevant, worthwhile, and meaningful in your life. And to allow you to get to that honest place of vulnerability. And my hope for today is that you see who God could be and then you open the desire of your heart to place your life in his hands and to begin to walk with him throughout all the days of your life. So my big, my big thesis this morning is this. As we try to get personal with God and walk with him, I'm going to say, I don't think you actually can see God in your personal everyday details of life until you see him as a big, ginormous God who is over all things. You won't be able to see God in the little details of your life until you see God over all of life. So that's where I'm going this morning. And maybe you got that hint from Psalm 113. So first, I want to talk about the placing of God. The placing of God. If you were to find him, where would you find him? Where would you place God? In Psalm 113, in these first three verses, let's look at it together. It says, praise the Lord, praise, O the servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. It begins with this affirmation of praise, which again, I know maybe not all of us are there yet. Maybe some of us are. But that's where the psalmist begins, is with praise, is that this God is praiseworthy. He's going to show us why. Verse 2, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth until forevermore. From this time forth until forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So these first three verses place God somewhere, and he places him in a ginormous place. And the place is, he is the God of all time. All time. You and I live a short amount of time on this earth. There's one pastor who years ago used an illustration where he brought a giant rope. It was probably 50 feet long, this giant rope. And he just started uncording the rope and just stretched it out as far as he could. He tied out the whole rope. And he says, this is, he says, this is eternity. That, there's the beginning, there's the end. And we learn from the children's story that God is at the beginning and God is at the end. He pulled out this giant rope and he said, do you know where your life is? And he, fi- he found one little spot. There was one tiny spot on the giant rope where it was painted red. And he says, this is where your life is, right here. 
This is your life in comparison to eternity. Your time right here on earth is this much. God's time is all time. From the rising of the sun to its setting, from this time forth forevermore, God is the God of all time. So the God of the Bible is the largest, most comprehensive, most beautiful God you can possibly imagine. And the reason why that's so important is because that's a massive claim to make. And what, what I love about Christianity, what I love about the Bible, is that they don't, they don't choose to hide from the fact that they're making a claim that God is the biggest thing in the world, the biggest thing in the, in the cosmos. But they say it just very matter-of-factly. He's the beginning and the end. He's over all things. He is from this time forth uh, to forevermore. He is the God of all time. It's a massive conception of who God is. So what I want to do now, just for a second, just to unpack this idea of time, is um, maybe have a thumb open to Genesis 1 and, and just look at the very beginning. Again, it's probably verses you know, but let's just let's make sure we're understanding what the God of the Bible is like. And so Genesis 1.1, in the very beginning of the Bible, starts with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And so the Bible's beginning of all things begins with God. He is at the very beginning. And again, verse 1 of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Before anything else, God. He is the chief character of this whole book, of this whole story. God is the chief character. He is where all things begin, and he's where all things end. Revelation 22, it ends with them, by glory being given to God in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth. So Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, the Bible claims that he is the creator God, that everything we see out in the world, he was the origin of. He brought it all into existence. As one uh, ancient, another theologian from our past, Abraham Kuyper, says, he says, there is not one square inch over all creation over which God does not say, that's mine. There's not one square inch. That little tiny piece of carpet on the floor right there is God's because he's the creator. But even more importantly, you are part of God's creation and therefore you are his. He is the largest God you can imagine. There are, there are no limits or bounds on time that press in on God. You and I are pressed by time every day. I'm pressed by time to finish this sermon in a timely manner so that you're still interested but also so you can still get to lunch on time. We're all bound by time. God is not bound by time. He is never in a hurry. He is never quickened. The only thing he is ever urgent on is to save you. The only thing that he is ever urgent with his time for is to save sinners. When Jesus Christ came, it said, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, not under the law, but to redeem humanity. It's Galatians 4. At just the right time, God is urgent to save sinners. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's what preaching does. God is the largest God you can imagine, but God is also the most comprehensive God you can imagine. Genesis 1, 1, the second part. In the beginning, God, he created the Heavens and the earth. That's, that's everything, folks. That's everything. 
He created the earth. He created the cosmos. He created the heavens. He is over all things. He is comprehensive in his design. And he didn't just create comprehensively, but he did it fine-tunely. He did it with a fine-tooth comb. If you look into, if, if you Google that phrase, the fine-tuning of the universe, it's one of the, the best arguments from a cosmological perspective, if you want to get into the philosophy. It's one of the best perspectives, the best understandings of why God is probable, of why God actually exists, and why just a sporadic combustion is not the only answer. God fine-tuned the universe because of the detail and the intricacy with which the world is made. And if you begin to look at the details, you're, you're blown away. Let me just give you a couple of things here. I told you this wasn't going to be philosophy, but I, I can't resist a couple of things here. The fine-tuning of the universe refers to the, the surprising precision of two things in the universe. Number one, nature's physical constraints. And number two, the beginning state of the universe. Let me say this. This is a quote. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. Every single one of them, which must be perfectly met, or the whole thing will fall apart. Without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, for instance, whose gravity will draw away asteroids, a thousand times as many asteroids would actually hit Earth's surface. So thank God for Jupiter. The odds against life in the universe are just astounding without the fine-tuning principle of creation. Let's talk about a couple of things here about nature's physical constraints. You have four things that are really the physical constraints. You have the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and gravity. Don't, don't, don't get lost here for a second. I know we're into astrophysicists for a second, but let me just, this, this has relevance. Let me just talk about gravity. This is another quote. The strength of gravity has to be exactly right for stars to form in the sky. But what do we mean by exactly? It turns out that if we change gravity by even a tiny fraction of a percent, enough so that you would be able to say, say, one billionth of a gram heavier or lighter, one billionth of a gram heavier or lighter, the universe becomes so different that there are no stars, no galaxies, no planets. And without planets, there would be no life. The other constraints of nature possess this same feature. Change any of them, and in the universe, like Robert Frost's traveler, moves along a very different path. And remarkably, every one of these different paths leads to a a universe without life in it. I I could tell you a number of other things here, talking about density and other things, but let me just say this. The... The precision with which the world has been made, the universe has been made, is, is, is so unlikely, as one person says, it would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads ten quintillion times in a row. That's how finely tuned and comprehensive our God has made the universe and the world. He holds it together by his hands. And it's extraordinary when you begin to go down that rabbit trail. And so we must allow our soul then to ask at that time, did God really, is he the one behind all this? Because it seems plausible when you begin to look at it that way. There's a rational, personal being behind all this. It can't just be chance. 
Richard Dawkins says it's probably just chance. That's a really small chance. The option the Bible gives us is that God is the designer, the beautiful designer. And so the last thing here with time is that is that the world isn't just hanging together in this really precise way, in a like a manufactured kind of way or like a uh, a really stale way, but the world also is beautiful. Did you see the flowers as you came into the church this morning on the stoop? Beautiful. Did you see the bee that was sitting on top of that flower as you came in the church? Beautiful. Have you seen the sunflowers in front of some people's houses this week? Amazing. God's world is beautiful. As Sidney Sheldon says, a blank piece of paper is God's way of telling us how hard it is to be God. God is a beautiful God. He has no restraints. He's awesomely transcendent. And that's what our world longs for today, actually, is a God who is outside of our our worries, outside of our condition, outside of our problems. A God who is on the outside in with his transcendence, over and above all things, over time. Not affected by the same things that were affected in the time sense, but over it and in control of it all. So that's the first big point. God is the God of all time. Second big point with regards to just this God that we're wanting to walk with is what is his relevance? So, okay, God is he's over all things, but that, that can kind of make him seem far removed too. Maybe he's just sitting up in the cosmos somewhere, not actually involved in our everyday life. But again, Psalm 113 tells us very differently. Look at verse four. The Lord is high above, yes, but he's high above all the nations and his glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks down, far down on the heavens and the earth? He's not just far above, so that, that's, that's the emphasis of that passage is that he's far above, but it, it specifically says he's far above the nations, the ethnic groups of the world, which implies to us that he is sovereignly and in control over the nations, which if he's sovereignly and in control of the nations, that means he knows exactly what's going on, and that means that he has a plan that he's trying to fulfill through the nations. So as we see the nations rage in these last two weeks, as we see the troubles in Afghanistan, as we see the the natural order rebelling in Haiti, as we see a hurricane about to hit Louisiana, God is sovereignly in control, and he's the God of the nations. The United Nations was formed in 1945 as a a reaction to World War II and as a way to try to be better than what the League of Nations was for World War I. So the United Nations got together, and their goal was to uh, prevent future wars and, quote, to aim to maintain international peace and security, develop friendly relations among nations, and to achieve international cooperation and to be a center for harmonizing the actions of nations. So currently there's 193 member states of the United Nations that are trying to control the world in a a way that they're trying to be positive with it. But the psalmist and what ultimately Genesis 2, when God creates humanity, shows us a more personal picture of a God who didn't just create a world and then let it spin, he created a world and put people in it. 
He put you and I in the world. Even if it's just this little tiny red dot amongst a giant world, he put you and I in it for purpose. And he wants to have a relationship with us so that the world will be a better place. The world will be redeemed. The world would be beautiful, not just in an in a, a, uh, artistic way, but in a loving way. Love, ultimately, is what our world needs. It's what we all desire. So God is high above. He is transcendent. But he is also eminent, as theologians say. He is over all the nations, not affected by the goings-on of the world. But he's also not removed from it. Because he has a relationship with people. He's connected with the goings-on of the world. Psalm 8 says that when I... He's, the psalmist says, When I see the works of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? God deeply cares for humanity. He is the most involved God, the most in control God, and the most sovereign God of the universe. When God created humanity... Again, think about the intentionality here. He created man, but then he gave him a command right away. He said, you can eat from any tree of the garden except the one that I'm telling you not to eat from. As this divine test. He's in control. God has parameters. He knows what's best for us. He's in control and he's sovereign. He says, in the day that you eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You will surely die. God knows what is best for the world. And he's sovereignly in control and involved with it. The big part of Psalm 113 is verse 5, right? Which is the question that I hope our soul gets to frequently in life. Which is, who is like the Lord our God? To whom can you compare him? What other options are there? As you think about walking through life, your options are to walk with this God who is beautiful and involved and sovereign and over all things and in control, or you have to find another option. So what is that other option for you, and how is it competing for your interest with God? And this, this gets me to my last point. We've talked about the time, God being the God of all time. We've talked about God being relevant because he's in control. But what about the need? And this is the question we're really going to be again unpacking next week through Zephaniah and through other texts. But what is the need for God? And this is where the last couple of verses of Psalm 113 come to play. Verses 7, 8, and 9. The need for God is because... He is the God of all brokenness. When you look at your own life, when you watch the news, when you see your day-to-day life, it doesn't take long to figure out that things are broken and that there's things that need fixing. And the beauty of the God of the Bible is that He is the God of all brokenness. Not that He ordained it. Not that that He brought brokenness into the world Himself. Brokenness comes into the world through Genesis 3, where humanity did eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and rebelled and therefore brought, brought rebellion and disunity with God and ultimately that's sin. But when I say God is the God of all brokenness, it means that he is there with the broken. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Look at the brokenness in these three verses. The poor, 
the needy, the barren woman. Three different types of brokenness. The poor, in verse 7, it says he raises the poor from the dust. The poor could be from those who made bad decisions in life and self-inflicted poverty on themselves. That does happen. But also it could be a result of, of poor life circumstances outside of their control that result in their brokenness. Born into a poor family or into a poor country or they lost their job because of injustice or something else. It's brokenness in some sense by decision, either by them or by somebody else. But it's brokenness. Look at the needy. It says God lifts the needy from the ash heap. Again, this could be anything. What are you needy for? We're all going to be needy for lunch in just a little bit. Maybe not needy, but if we were to wait a couple of days, we would be needy, right? All of us are needy for something. And so we have, we have brokenness in us in the most classic sense of just having something that's wrong that needs to be fixed. It's brokenness by desperation. When you get to a desperate place, that means something is broken and that you're in need. And then lastly, the barren woman. What's the brokenness here? Almost every example of a barren woman, which there's a lot in the Bible, actually, and God draws near to every single one of them. And maybe that's something even you've experienced in your life. But the brokenness of a barren woman almost every time has nothing to do with the woman herself. And so it's brokenness by design. Again, God allows some brokenness by design for reasons that we don't know, that are mysterious, but they actually are part of our story to learn why would a God allow brokenness in my life if it's by design? And if you're walking with God, which is, this is just what we're excited to learn about these next two weeks, next Sunday and the week after. If you're walking with God truly and genuinely and in faith, then you can walk with God even through a brokenness by design moment or certainly in a brokenness by desperation moment, or even when you make a terrible decision and something breaks in your life, God is with you. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. He doesn't just pick them up. He puts them on a throne next to princes with the princes of his people. And then he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what our God does. He is the God of brokenness. Again, God is not removed from our brokenness, but neither did he birth it or originate it. What did he do instead? He entered into our brokenness in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God came into the world to save sinners, to enter into our broken world, not just to be perfect and to live the perfect life, which he did, but ultimately so that he would take on our brokenness, all of it on himself, stretch himself on the cross, allow himself to take the shame and the mockery and the sin of the whole world so that broken people, sinful people like you and me, no longer carry that burden no longer carry that shame, but trust in the one who bore it on the cross and raised victoriously from the grave. God is the God of all brokenness. Show me a God who acts like that on behalf of the people of the world. The Bible shows us Jesus.
Exodus 34, this is just the last text I'm going to show you, just as we're coming to the end here. Exodus 34 is another text written by an ancient path. It's Moses telling the story of the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt, out of slavery. And this is the God he encounters in Exodus 34. After Israel broke themselves by making a golden calf. After they were broken because of a a dumb, idolatrous decision to forsake their living God for a, a golden calf that they made. God comes before the people, and in verse 6 of Exodus 34, this is what Moses writes, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. This is a phrase that gets repeated throughout the Bible. God is a God of mercy and compassion and steadfast, loyal covenant love to every generation. He promises forgiveness in his name. That is the God that we love. He's the most gracious God, the most loving God, the most faithful God. He remembers his covenant. He remains loyal to his people. He's faithful to his promises. So remember what I said at the beginning. You won't be able to see God in the little details of your little life, your one little speck of life, without seeing the the whole story, the enormity of who God is, as the Bible shows and again, there's a lot of options for who God could be, but I, I'm just asking you, who could be a better God than this? Who is like our God, strong to save, loving to his people, compassionate in every way? Here's my closing story. Uh, as we mentioned the trail earlier, Deep Creek that we were walking on, I, I grew up on that trail. It's just a couple of miles from my parents' house. I remember being a little kid, you know, Nora and Clara's age, walking that trail myself, And I've gone through a lot of experiences on that trail. As we think about walking with God, these are just a couple of things I remembered from this trail. I've seen rattlesnakes on that trail. I've encountered black bears on that trail. I've been stung by bees on that trail. Actually, I just got stung by one two weeks ago on that trail. My older brother broke his ankle on that trail. There's a lot of tough things that have happened on that trail. But there's also been some amazing things that have happened. I've been on walks with my grandparents, cousins, parents, friends, children, and my wife on that trail. I've seen three waterfalls there. I once dribbled a basketball on the frozen river on that trail. I've run long miles of exhilarating exercise. I've hiked up and around the ridgeline. I've thrown rocks in the water. My brother got, he proposed to his wife there. And I've seen teachers from high school and friends from my past on that trail. There's beauty that happens on that trail. And friends, when we walk with God, yes, you may get stung by a bee. Yes, you may encounter a rattlesnake. God doesn't, God doesn't promise that bad things won't come our way. But he also promises the beauty of life with others on that trail. And that's what the church is. So we invite you as you begin this fall Again, whether you're new to the area or whether you've been coming here for a while, connect with us. 
Be part of this community. Bear one another's burdens. Lean on one another as we push one another towards knowledge of who Jesus is. God is worthy of praise, as Psalm 113 says. And next week, we'll look into the word with. What does it mean to walk with God? Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you with a a phrase even like that because you, again, choose to draw near to us. You're the God of all things, but you also relate to each one of us. You're both. You're transcendent and you're eminent. You're high above, but you're intimately involved. Lord, meet each and every one of us in the quietness of our own soul today. And help us to ask that question, who is God? Are you God? And help us to see you fully in the scriptures, through the person of Jesus, and through your working in the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.